You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Hello, everyone. My name is Kyle Matthews. I'm executive director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We all know that genocides and mass atrocity crimes always begin with words, not with actions. So we're very pleased today to have this panel on countering online hate towards racial and ethnic minorities. Um, This is part of an umbrella of a project called the Digital Peace Project, which is funded by the government of Canada, supported by the government of Canada, uh, in particular, the Department of Canadian Heritage. And and from these online sessions we're having, we're going to draw lessons uh, to try to help NGOs, the international community, and the government of Canada um, develop better policies and better strategies to deal with online hate. But today we're joined by four very distinguished guests, four experts, um, who are all playing a leading role globally uh, through the UN or through museums and academic institutions to further our awareness and knowledge of what hate speech is online and how we can counter it. Our first um, distinguished guest is Alice Enritu, who is a UN Secretary General Special Advisor uh, uh, for the Prevention of Genocide. Uh, we're also joined with Fernanda Varen, who is a UN Special Rapporteur on Minority Issues. Uh, following Fernand, we have Naomi Key Kohler, who is the director of the Simon Scott Center at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. And last but not least, we also are joined by Ronan Lee, who's at Lowborough University and an expert on, particularly on the Rohingya um, uh, genocide and how incitement was used uh, to incite hatred towards Rohingya. So we have these distinguished guests with us today. Um, how the event will proceed, we're going to ask each guest to make an opening statement about you know, uh, why is counter hate speech important? Uh, how is it linked to human rights? And then we're going to go into a, a moderated discussion. So with that being said, you know, what are the, your thoughts on countering online hate speech? Thank you very much. And uh, I'm glad to join you once again. Um, we just had the International Day for Countering Hate Speech on, on January, on, um, on June 9, uh, 19th, which was Monday this week. We commemorate it on um, June 18th. But this past Monday, we celebrated it um, here as established because we have the day itself was established by the General Assembly Resolution 75309. So we had an event organized by my office jointly with the Kingdom of Morocco. And this event offered the opportunity to renew the UN commitment to tackling hate speech, to fight hatred and discrimination, and also prevent violence and atrocity crimes. And so we've this year, uh, we are showcasing uh, the best practices for addressing and countering hate speech globally. Because this, this plan of action, the, UN, the United Nations Strategy and Plan of Action, has been around for now for four years. And uh, we've done huge amounts of work uh, on the basis of this plan. It was launched by the SG in, uh, 18th, on 18th June 2019. And um, it speaks uh, directly to quite a number of commitments. First, uh, it's drafted in line with international human rights law. We do know that there are quite a number of contexts where often there are discussions in terms of whether hate speech and free speech, whether there is a thin line between hate speech and and, and free speech. So we paid attention to freedom of opinion and expression. 
we involved all stakeholders, government, civil societies, private sector, citizens, academia, tech and social media companies. And uh, we've uh, coordinated quite a huge amount of data collection and research, including on the root causes drivers and conditions conducive to, to his speech. I would say that in terms of importance, um, first, the strategy provides uh, um, an, a, a definition a working definition. We know that in many contexts uh, around the world, uh, we do not have definitions for his speech, but we have a working definition. Um, and in the context of the, uh, the strategy and plan of action of the UN, the, de the definition is that his speech is understood as any kind of communication in speech, writing or behavior that attacks or uses pejorative or discriminatory language with reference to a person or a group on the basis of who they are. In other words, based on their religion, ethnicity, nationality, race, color, descent, gender, or other identity factor. And why this is important is that we just need to look back at history and see that history teaches us the hate speech it can be both a precursor and an accompaniment to the commission of genocide, war crimes and crimes against humanity. We have, unfortunately, very practical examples of this because we saw this in the Holocaust. We saw the in the genocides in Rwanda against the Tutsi. We saw that in Srebrenica in Bosnia Herzegovina, where hate speech and the dehumanization of the other is was present during, after, and long before violence broke out and such crimes were committed. And I... As we speak right now, there continues to be a huge need. It just shows the power of hate speech that up to today, long after these genocides uh, happened, the ones that I've just mentioned, that we are responding to growing concerns of online and offline persistent terms of denial of the crime of genocide. And all this is put out um, through hate speech. So I, I would say that um, it's absolutely important to remember that no single country in the world is immune to hate speech and that hate speech thrives on divisions and um, sometimes pits people who have previously coexisted peacefully against each other. And in conflict and post-conflict context, hate speech is vicious, it's dangerous, it capitalizes uh, especially on the vulnerability of specific groups, and it's a threat to advancing peace, security, and the respect and promotion of international human rights and humanitarian law, which really is at the core of the work of the United Nations globally. Thank you, Alice, for the wide-sweeping uh, opening statements and, and, and letting us know the important work that your office is doing with the wider UN um, uh, UN system. Um, Fernan, as the special um, um, uh, rapporteur on, on minorities and minority rights, I'd, I'd like to, to pass the floor to you and, and hear your thoughts on, on why is countering online hate speech so important? Well, uh, merci beaucoup, Kyle, uh, Madame Under Secretary General, distinguished panelists, Mesdames et Messieurs, bonjour tout le monde, and in the Welsh language, Boreda. Um, let me start by, by saying, first of all, that this is not new. Alexis de Tocqueville in his treatise on democracy in America wrote that majority rule can easily take the, the shape of the tyranny of the majority. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is a largely unregulated and relative impunity enjoyed by major social media platforms mean that minorities around the world have been the scapegoats of choice, targets of venom and hate, the scale of a breath of which we've never seen before. Um, and really what we're seeing here is uh, a situation where we are experiencing the amplification of hate, partially uh, and significantly because of the business model of social media platforms, which intentionally directs so as to, mo to monetize uh, 
and be more profitable. And given the world's growing uncertainties and fear, what we're seeing is the, the exploitation by politicians and others uh, who are seeing, uh, and we're seeing, uh, threats of a scale and speed that governments are unable or unwilling to address head on. So what I'm referring to is the dark side of social media, which is now impossible to ignore, uh, because they become the breeding ground and propaganda vehicle for dangerous tropes conspiracy theories, misinformation, disinformation, racism, and scapegoating of minorities. And there, there are even examples, including the resurgence of some of the crudest forms of anti-Semitic propaganda, even all the way back to the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is coming back, believe it or not, through social media. So what we're facing, what the international community is facing, uh, is a failure to tackle hate speech and that minorities are the main targets. In fact, we can say that they are facing a tsunami of hate and xenophobia and a poisoning of the mind. And it has, in my opinion, in fact, this is something that needs to be looked at. The United Nations has to initiate a global process to regulate in a legally binding treaty what is a global phenomenon. We need guidance, clarity, and consistency. Uh, in adopting a human rights-centered approach that would have two central pillars. First of all, ensuring the proper understanding and protection of freedom of expression, and not just restricting speech for hurt feelings or, or, or unpopular views. It's extremely important that we have clear guidance so that governments, for example, don't overreach and in fact limit uh, 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 permissible uh, speech, even if it's unpopular. And secondly, we need to focus on what uh, on those who appear to be overwhelmingly the main victims. Perhaps three quarters of more or more of all targets of hate speech in social media are minorities. So let me be absolutely clear: hate speech in social media is spreading and increasing. We're being flooded, and words we have to understand create ripples and have consequences in the real world. So one of the main messages in the report that I presented to the UN General Assembly in 2021 is that we're failing to sufficiently address and acknowledge who are the overwhelming targets of hate speech. Minorities are overwhelmingly the victims of hate and incitement to violence and discrimination. By the way, not just ethnic or racial minorities, but perhaps more importantly, religious minorities, which unfortunately and surprisingly today, often are omitted. It's anti-Semitism, it's Islamophobia, it's also anti-Gypsyism, and the vitriol against uh, Afro-Americans, against Asians, against Latinos and Latinas, against, well, you know, mainly, overwhelmingly, uh, minorities, religious, ethnic, and linguistic minorities. Now, uh, at the United Nations and in many countries, uh, I, I think we are failing by not naming and tackling specifically this evil. The UN Strategy Plan of Action and Guidance, which Alice just mentioned, on combating hate speech, in my opinion, does not refer sufficiently to minorities as being the main targets of hate speech. And In fact, to be very honest, it hardly mentions minorities directly at all, but I understand and have high hopes that a review underway under the stewardship of the Undersecretary General will help to rectify its glaring uh, omission. So not so focusing enough on the main targets of hate speech, which are minorities, also means ignoring the, the severest forms of hate speech that can lead to the worst instances of violence, atrocities, and even genocide, as uh, Alice just referred to. 
And this is perhaps a final point I'll say, which is not fully appreciated. The hate speech faced by minorities is qualitatively different from most other forms of hate uh, in social media because the harm and violence it may lead to are far worse. The Holocaust did not start with gas chambers. It started with hate speech against mainly Jewish and Roma minorities. And in the case of hate speech in social media, today it can lit literally mean individuals can be pointed out, lynched, massacres because they belong to minorities. This is what happened to the Rohingya in Myanmar uh, through hate speech that was allowed for years to continue almost unabated in uh, Facebook, mainly, and other social media. But we're seeing it again today against Muslim minorities in Sri Lanka and in India and other countries. And we're seeing uh, situations where the gender dimension is perhaps also not always fully appreciated. Women who belong to despise, and I use that word intentionally, can, uh, despise minorities can easily become the targets of abuse and sexual violence. They can be otherized and objectified, especially in social media. And as we've seen this in the case of minorities such as the uh, Dalits. So if you ask me if the United Nations and other defenders of the global human rights architecture, act architecture did enough in relation to the scourge we're facing with hate speech and social media, hate speech against religious and linguistic and not only ethnic or racial minorities, I would have to say absolutely not because we're still not naming the evil that we're facing. Fernand, thank you so much for um, that detailed opening uh, statement and for reminding us also uh, that religious minorities um, are often targeted and, 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 and also referencing the Holocaust and how uh, the Holocaust started not with action but with words. And I think now we'd like to segue to Naomi Kikoler from the Holocaust Museum because um, your museum uh, came about from hate speech, from genocide, um, and you're working today to help other minority groups around the world being targeted by genocidal violence. So I'd like Naomi to, to, to pass the floor to you to make opening remarks. Thank you so much, Kyle. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to this discussion and to, especially to the, the questions. It's a real honor to join all of you. As you mentioned, as a center, uh, our goal is to really try to do for communities today what was not done for the Jews of Europe during the Holocaust. And at the heart of that lies a commitment to advancing an understanding of and also encouraging action in response to the presence of early warning signs. We here at the museum often reflect on the fact that the Holocaust did not begin with gas chambers. It began with words, words used to divide, to dehumanize, to demonize, and to create an environment in which genocidal ideologies could take hold and in which perpetrators could commit their crimes, but also where a broader society would either look away, choose to be indifferent, um, or be in some ways active enablers of the crimes. We know that hate and dangerous speech is a prevalent feature today in situations where gen genocide is at risk or occurring. And history has shown us that a common, though not necessary, feature of most mass atrocities is that they're preceded by dangerous speech, including hate speech. When we think about the role of speech, there are a few key ways that we try to grapple with it. Uh, two of the most pertinent ones, I think, for this conversation is one in creating the conditions whereby a society becomes desensitized. Uh, where there is demonization of a community and through the dehumanization uh, and the explicit effort to dehumanize a particular community, it 
it makes them more vulnerable to attack. And I think, as has already been mentioned, all too often this tends to be um, the targeting of minority communities that are victimized, where a narrative of us versus them is advanced, grievances are exploited or manufactured to carry out uh, this dehumanization effort. The second is the role of hate speech in actually facilitating the commission of crimes. Uh, that could be through identifying individuals to attack, um, expressing and outlining methods for attacking a particular community, tracking the movements of a population, um, or celebrating the attacks in the aftermath. I think one of the most glaring examples is it contributed to the commission of genocide in the context of the Rohingya in Burma. And we have an exhibit at our museum which talks about the role that Facebook and other um, sources of information played in creating an environment that was ripe for genocide to occur. We're facing technological advances that far, thus far have dramatically outpaced our ability to enact policies to counter some of the negative effects. And I'm really concerned that with the advent of AI, we're confronted with yet again another new technology um, and one that we really just have, have begun to scratch the surface on what the implications will be in the context of hate speech. I wanted to just kind of mention a few things perhaps for us to kind of delve into a little bit more. The first is that there's still a lot that we do not understand about the context under which speech can lead to violent attacks and thus more research is needed. But we also can't wait for that research to be completed because it's going to be an ongoing iterate effort to develop, uh, to develop policy responses. And also just given how rapidly evolving the technologies are and the scale and reach of these new media tools, time is really um, of the essence. We're talking a lot, I find these days, about the role of social media. And I think that that's appropriate. But I think we have to also, as Alice noted when referring to the Rabat principles, recall that that's just one prong or one tool that can be used when we talk about um, propagating hate speech. For many communities, internet saturation still remains low and social media may mix with more traditional media, uh, speeches at rallies, rumors, and we have to invest in local efforts to counter this. We can't just focus on one medium or one way of responding to potential harms. Another factor is that our responses have to really be considered from a long-term perspective. This is something that we need to be investing in, constantly calibrating our responses, having iterative um, efforts at, at policy responses, and it needs to be both based at the global and local level, which I think um, has already been mentioned. We need a holistic response. States can't do this in a piecemeal manner, nor can we leave it to, for example, social media actors to self-regulate. We do, as has been mentioned, require and really need uh, standards at a global level. And in some instances, they exist, for example, with the robot principles, but we don't actually have a comprehensive global approach to how to counter um, and respond to hate or dangerous speech. And again, our responses have to really be informed by the local context. So we have a lot of good starting points, the principles when it comes to accountability, Santa Clara principles when it comes to content moderation. We've seen companies like Facebook create oversight boards. These are all positive steps, but we still really have a long way to go, which is why I think today's conversation is just so incredibly important. Thank you, Naomi, and, and thank you for mentioning um, 
advances in technology, particularly AI, what that means, uh, not just for content moderation, but how it could possibly be used to, to, to incite violence and spread hate speech. So I think that's key, and I'd like to get in, discuss that a bit more with, with all of you a bit later. But, but I would now like to, to pass the floor to Ronan Lee of Lowborough University. Ronan, please, the, the floor is yours. Uh, thanks very much, and really thank you so much for organising what I think is a very important event. I mean, this is a subject that uh, has been on my radar since I started doing research in Myanmar with the Rohingya and has been so integral to uh, the, the, the circumstances that that community has found itself in in recent years. And I, I, as, as a researcher whose, whose work is primarily with the Rohingya community, I always think it's important to start by saying that this is a community that I think too often is presented uh, in the media, understandably presented in the media as a victim group. And I think it's important to recognise that this was not a community that were always victims. These were, this is a community that was at one point an integral part of the political fabric of Myanmar. They were part of the mainstream political fabric of that country when it became independent and that over time their rights were incrementally removed. And that occurred basically from when the military came to power in the 1960s. But I think what's important to note is that at no point until we see the advent of social media did the military attempt to forcibly deport the majority of the Rohingya from that country. And as a, as a, as a scholar of the Rohingya and as a scholar of hate speech, what we, what we see occurring from around 2012 when Facebook enters the Myanmar, uh, Myanmar media market, we see, of course, a rise in uh, anti-Rohingya communications. But what we see is, in fact, the creation of a political constituency that enabled the military to do the crimes to the Rohingya that they had desired for decades, but to, to do that without any political constituency within Myanmar that was prepared to stand up and speak for the Rohingya. And this is why I think uh, hate speech enabled by social media should be so important to every country on our planet, because if, if it can happen to the Rohingya community, then it can certainly happen in any other in any other country that that we that we 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 might imagine. I mean, the military of Myanmar was was never in it, it, its its attitude towards the Rohingya never changed. It always had a desire to genocidally mistreat that community, but what enabled them to do it in the way that we've seen since twenty seventeen is the knowledge that domestically there was no longer a constituency that might be able to stick up and support the Rohingya. Now, we can talk about the failure of the international community to get involved, but I think we knew what the international community was likely to do uh, in, in, in Myanmar during that, that 2012 to 2017 period. What changed and changed very rapidly was the attitude of people within the country. And that's why I think uh, this conversation today is, is so very important. Thank you, Ronan, for that. And, and I, I think the case of um, hate speech and the Rohingya is, is the seminal case of hate speech and, and online hate speech. I mean, there's so much to learn from that and apply to 
future scenarios and, and looking at where are the areas for us that we can, you know, um, take action early on to prevent that from happening. So, so I think that I'd like to, to go back to you, Alice. Um, you talked about the UN strategy and plan of action on your speech. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what does the plan of action and your office do to deal with the online component of hate speech? Is there anything specific you're doing now with, with tech companies or building digital literacy? Um, to tell us a bit more about how you, you engage on the online aspect of it. Quite a bit of um, interaction with tech and social media companies. Um, actually in a conversation, a three-year-old conversation now, um, on different aspects. Um, we began with the approach of um, trying to understand what is it we can do about their business profit model um, that expands faster than uh, an eye can blink and um, with the capacity of, of spreading heat so much faster than um, it previously was. And um, I often say that um, even as we're talking about taking social media companies, we should pay attention to the fact that um, of offline hate speech, that it's offline hate speech that actually feeds online hate speech. And that um, there was hate speech uh, prior to the Holocaust and uh, taken social media companies didn't exist then. And also prior to the genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, prior to the genocide in Srebrenica as well. And um, so... What we do uh, with tech and social media companies, uh, we have been looking at, uh, especially their algorithms. Everybody's always talking about their algorithms. We've been looking at their algorithms in terms of how do you factor in, um, uh, how do you factor in algorithms that when somebody is looking, for example, for genocide denial or Holocaust denial. Um, how do we factor in an algorithm that then gives you facts uh, about how the Holocaust actually happened, that gives you um, the decisions that came out of Nuremberg, for example? How, how do you then drive people in the direction um, as opposed to what algorithms we know do? You look for a bad thing and they keep bringing you all the bad things you're looking for. So that's been one of the things that uh, we've done very well with ourselves, also with the um, sister agency, UNESCO, um, ensuring that um, that when people are looking, are searching, that the algorithms are then wired that way. We've also worked uh, quite a bit in terms of, because um, we know tech and social media companies. I, I worked for a media house in the past some years ago, and um, I know uh, very well the, the structures. By the time you see a story in the New York Times, an article, an op-ed in the New York Times, the levels that it has passed through, um, I also know about the guidance of uh, that's provided through, um, uh, for example, um, editorial. Um, uh, we have editorial uh, guidance for 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 the team, and that's completely does not exist. Like anybody can just put out anything anywhere. So uh, the tech and social media companies um, said oh, they've been working with content moderators, um, human content moderators, as well as the automated content moderators. And so we've supported um, the creation of, um, of of training guidance for for the teams themselves, the tech and social media companies themselves, but also the, the human um, content moderators that they have. In 2021, I, I said these are conversations that's gone on for a very long time. And in 2021, in October, uh, I briefed the Security Council and I invited tech and social media companies to come and call brief. 
And so we got uh, on board. Uh, we had Twitter, we had Facebook, uh, we had uh, TikTok, uh, we had YouTube. Um, they came and the Security Council was very engaged. And they, we had the Security Council of the present, the, the then Security Council and the incoming members as well. And the time kept getting extended because it was a very, very engaging conversation because, and it was engaging because there continues to be quite a number of, of loopholes um, in everything. Uh, the business profit model uh, still supersedes the need to end uh, or to counter his speech. Um, the tech and social media companies, they expand globally and they expand uh, in places that they don't have um, translation or for the languages um, or interpretation for, for the local languages. So, for example, like has we've observed in some of the situations where there is uh, violence going on, like um, during uh, the violence that was going on in Tigray, in Ethiopia, um, it became very clear that uh, the tech and social media companies um, had no idea uh, what content was being put out on his speech because it was put out in languages that they didn't have translation for. And I'm speaking to very many contexts where this is the case. So um, in terms of, of, of um, looking at uh, what then like needs to be done, uh, we continue to engage and we continue um, to engage from the perspective of not only um, monitoring, uh, providing to them um, ways of, of monitoring, um, but providing mechanisms that can help them to monitor. Because the amount of knowledge that they need to have as they take in social media companies themselves um, to ensure, for example, how to, um, like the inflammatory narratives that that. I usually come up, see, for example, related to elections and how urgently they need to be dealt with. We've, we've often found that they don't have the capacity to do that. And even if they have the capacity, for example, to bring down a post, they don't have the capacity to combat the root cause of, of that hate speech that has been put out on their platform. So we need a, a long-term project. And now um, with the larger advent of AI, and AI has always been there, there are now spaces that um, haven't been covered. Um, there are now spaces that we need to be looking at. For example, when chat GPT is putting out information, um, from where is it drawing its sources? Is it, for example, drawing its sources from uh, Holocaust uh, deniers and genocide deniers? Um, Holocaust uh, deniers and genocide deniers have really been on their case, especially in the Balkans, where they, they began concerted efforts of meeting together, organizing together, writing, uh, producing um, knowledge together, so that, um, in essence, creating that space where um, when when you're looking for information on, on, on the Holocaust, on the genocide of Srebrenica, that what you find more um, is the information they themselves have, have generated uh, that deny that the Holocaust in there happened or that um, the genocide happened. And they even created a commission of inquiry um, to prove uh, that the genocide in Srebrenica did not happen. And they used the template uh, of Holocaust deniers. If you look at the arguments, they are really, really related. So there's quite a lot of work that needs to be done. It's ongoing work. We will publish um, at the beginning of next month um, the recommendations that have come out from or the discussions, the Chatham House rule 
meetings we've been having with tech and social media companies. We've spoken with them, we've agreed with them that um, there's nothing in that document, in the in the recommendations that should be uh, kept um, secret anymore and that uh, we do need to tell the world that this is what we are doing. So, um, and also one of the other things we've done is uh, focus on the smaller ones. Um, we, we paid a lot of attention, especially we, we, it's been mentioned, um, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, um, the one of the cases that it's handling, the Rohingya case, um, that the, the evidence that Facebook um, was asked to provide uh, evidence on, on that, on the issue of the Rohingya, because so much of the mobilization of the Tatmadaw has was done on, on, on Facebook. So we're now focusing on the small ones as well. We've met quite a number. Uh, we now have uh, Twitch, um, Discord. Um, anyway, we have quite a number of the smaller ones on board as well. So, so we this an ongoing conversation, and, and we're following it from using different methods, different strategies. There's a strategy of, of calling out and saying what you're doing is completely unacceptable. But there's also that other strategy of let's sit down together and really understand where you this business profit model that you have um, is taking the world and what we need to do to stop you from taking us to the direction that we clearly see uh, we've been taken to in terms of people and doing work we do for a whole year or two years or even a century of work of um, of, of uh, promoting um, issues to do with the identity uh, pro uh, protection of human rights, how easy it is for all that to be undone by a single tweet, and especially when it's an influential person. Thank you, Alice, uh, for briefing us on the important work you're doing and, and for reminding us, too, some of the fundamental problems that, that still exist, which uh, some of these companies just do not have the capacity to monitor certain languages um, in parts of the world and, and how we're still struggling to train AI to do that. And there needs to be a bigger investment on that. I, I would now like to turn back to, to Fernand. Uh, Fernand, as the UN Special Rapporteur on Minor Issues, you've made addressing hate speech one of the thematic priorities of your mandate. And, and I know last year at um, you were at RightsCon uh, online and, 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 and unveiled some of the important work you're doing on that. I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, what made you focus on hate speech in particular in your mandate and what sorts of changes, calls to action do you want to see coming? after your reports and recommendations. Uh, thank you very much, Kyle. Uh, well, first of all, I, as I mentioned earlier, we have to understand who are the main targets, the main victims of hate speech, and it is overwhelmingly minorities. And this is an aspect which I think is not sufficiently recognized or even mentioned. Hence the importance of uh, my, my report to highlight, to, to emphasize and try to raise awareness that what we're dealing with, not exclusively, but mainly, is a situation of hate speech that targets quite vulnerable communities uh, who tend to be minorities, religious and linguistic or ethnic minorities. So that needed to, to be addressed and focused on much more directly than it had in the past. The second uh, point I think that um, needs to be uh, considered and, and explains my, my decision to, to look at this is that hate speech um, is increasingly is increasing everywhere, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, hate speech uh, against or targeting minorities. And therefore, what we're seeing is a global problem which needs to be addressed as a major uh, initial urgency, because as Alice just mentioned also earlier, there is it's clear now that we are facing huge challenges and also situations that are 
destabilizing many societies and creating or giving rise to even more uh, hate and intolerance than that have been in the past. And thirdly, perhaps, and I think it addresses some of the lack of resources and even the, the lack of linguistic abilities, the ability to address or to look at posts which are in, in various languages. I don't think this is a real problem. We are talking, when we're referring to social media, to some of the most profitable corporations, companies in the world. They make huge amounts of profit, sometimes on the basis, on the back of misinformation, disinformation, and hate. And I think at uh, one section of my report, and even the proposal for a, a global treaty on hate speech and social media, is that we have to make this business model and the use of AI and other ways uh, and, and other sources of it, disinformation and, and misinformation, we have to make this costly, not as profitable as it is. And these are aspects, issues that are very complex. There is no doubt about it. We need much more than just this tool. But we need to understand that we are not dealing with poor small businesses here. We are dealing with the most profitable corporations in the world who are not putting in the resources to address various uh, uh, challenges in terms of controlling this speech. Therefore, the initiative has to come from above, in my opinion, uh, partially through a global treaty to address these aspects, which are not fully un understood or appreciated. Thank you, Fernand, for reminding us that there are resources there. They're just not necessarily going to where they should be going or to even uh, civil society organizations that are trying to also um, do something about this. And, and it's very hard to raise funding uh, for NGOs and think tanks. Um, I'd like to turn to Naomi. Uh, Naomi, your Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the museum alerts the U.S.'s national conscious. You influence policymakers and you stimulate worldwide action to prevent uh, atrocity crimes. Um, what role do you see monitoring or combating online hate speech having as part of an early warning systems? Thanks so much for that, Kyle. And um, I would just put the caveat of we do everything we can to try to uh, alert the U.S. government um, and help strengthen their architecture for prevention. Uh, we really feel that it is of the essence that we start to orient our responses much more to upstage um, prevention efforts there's always going to be a focus on what to do once the crimes have already started. But as we all know, at that point, you know, your options become far more narrow and the costs considerably higher at times to uh, enact protection strategies. And so with an emphasis on prevention, we've been really on building out our own early warning capacities. Now I say that with a couple of caveats, the early warning system that, um, we run, which is called the Early Warning Project that was developed with Dartmouth. And it looks at um, countries around the world and from a statistical, does a statistical risk assessment based on a number of different variables and based on uh, publicly available information. What it doesn't do is it doesn't have the ability to look at indicators around hate speech. And it's something that we have been trying to explore over the last few years on how we could possibly do that, how we could innovate in regards to real-time data. And there are a lot of challenges, and I think this is where there is considerable opportunity. Um, and being very mindful of the comments that have been made, especially um, 
you know, the, the most recent comment around the role of the tech companies, there is so much noise, there is so much information. Trying to figure out how to parse out all of that noise is of critical importance. And one of the only ways you can do that is through investing much more, as was said, in understanding the local context in which speech occurs. Um, and it, that's an area where it really does require a significant investment in resources and also an intentionality about making sure that you are investing in the local um, communities and that that information is trickling up. It's something that, as I said, we're continuing to try to explore how to integrate this into our own early warning work. But I think there has to be a much greater emphasis on building early warning systems within vulnerable communities, ensuring that members of minority communities in uh, vulnerable situations have got their own ways of being able to report out, to alert UN officials, to alert others, uh, concerned civil society, to be their allies when they are in a situation where they're facing a rise in uh, dangerous speech. And I think we might have a chance to talk in a little bit just about some of the cases. But, you know, one example right now is the plight of the Yazidi in Iraq, where there has been increase in hate speech that has been uh, propagated against them over the last few months. And this is a community that has experienced genocide in the past, where social media was a driver of the crimes perpetrated by ISIS, uh, and where they are again now being demonized. And there's very little response from the social media companies um, or from the Iraqi government in response to this. So I think there's a gap when it comes to early warning and a real need for a doubling down um, and an investment in really trying to develop uh, early warning systems that allow for us to identify at a much earlier stage the potential for a dangerous situation to emerge. And of course, as I said before, we have to think not just about social media, but other forms as well. Rwanda happened prior to the existence of Twitter and Facebook. So again, we just really have to kind of be clear-eyed um, about how holistic a response is needed when we're talking uh, about something as um, serious as dangerous speech. Thank you, Naomi, and, and for reminding us um, that we've seen atrocity crimes take place before the advent of social media. Um, so we have to look at the full spectrum of incitement device. Uh, but one of the things that, that is new is that hate speech now can be transnational. Uh, uh, Alice also mentioned about anonymous accounts. So there, there is something going on which is unique that, 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 ha that human rights um, activists and those in the atrocity prevention community have to kind of really think about, which um, which is is a, a challenge. I, I would like to turn to um, to Ronan now. Uh, Ronan, your your book, Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech, details the whole case of the Rohingya, the history and what happened uh, that led to their mass expulsion. Um, just a few years ago. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about, you know, what were the examples of hate speech and 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 where did it come from? Because you mentioned the military, but there were also religious figures um, that uh, that use Facebook in a way. So I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit more details about what, what your research uncovered and, and what we can learn from it. Yeah, so um, re really two elements, I think, to what was going on within Myanmar. So you, you, you had a military who for decades had an agenda, which was the genocidal destruction of the Rohingya community. I, I think for them, they saw that there were two elements to enabling that. One was, uh, one was uh, the international response and the other was the domestic. 
Uh, in terms of the international, I, I think they calibrated what they expected by uh, launching uh, test atrocities against the Rohingya to work out was there a was there a, a, a stomach in the international community for intervention within Myanmar. They worked out that there there wasn't. And at that point, I think that's when the military turned its attention to the domestic market. I mean, from their point of view, um, attacking the Rohingya was going to require a degree of domestic acquiescence to, to that occurring. And social media, frankly, gave them an opportunity to turbocharge the sort of hate that they wanted to spread within the community. And they, they did that uh, in a couple of ways. One was by using... Um, uh, your standard sort of social media hothouse where you, you you hire hundreds of people and you put them in a, in a place and, and they generate uh, content that pushes a particular agenda. And th there's certainly evidence that that occurred uh, within Myanmar. The, the other thing is that you, you would do would be that you would activate uh, groups that had some, uh, some standing within the country. And obviously, uh, uh, Myanmar is an overwhelmingly Buddhist country. The Rohingya are a Muslim minority. Uh, there were uh, ultra-nationalists in the Buddhist monkhood in Myanmar who regarded uh, Islam as an existential threat. And those people, and I'll, I'll call out Waratu, who's, who's a, a prominent figure, uh, described by Time magazine as the, the face of Buddhist terror, uh, I think he described himself as the Buddhist bin Laden, and and Waratu was you might regard as a as a, as a uh, as an ultra nationalist influencer. He generated content that that pre that presented to uh, ordinary Buddhists the idea that. Um, uh, uh, marginalising the Muslim community, in particular the, the Rohingya community, ought to be regarded as a religious duty uh, and that they ought to be regarded as disloyal to the nation and a threat to the national political fabric. And, and those sorts of messages were uh, widely spread and encouraged, obviously, by, um, uh, uh, by the military and encouraged obviously, by those who had an agenda that was to uh, to to marginalise the Rohingya. Now, the, the, the failure in all this is obviously that these things don't happen in a vacuum. These things happen in circumstances where uh, the platforms that this hate has been spread upon uh, should be regulating it. And, and, and what we saw in Myanmar was that there was a markedly different level of moderation provided to the people of Myanmar than would, for instance, have been provided in the United Kingdom or France or Canada, and and, and for me, this is a marker of a social media uh, social media companies and and Facebook is that was was uh, in the lead up and during the genocide uh, the genocidal deportion deportation of the Rohingya in twenty seventeen. Facebook was the major culprit here. Um, there the, the was a profit motive at play. It's very it's very clear. Uh, that Facebook provided far fewer resources for moderation in Myanmar, and I suspect in other parts of the global south, than they would have expected in in the, in, in in the global north. And, and and I mean to put it to put it mildly, it, it, you could imagine you could imagine the scandal if a motor vehicle manufacturer decided it was going to sell vehicles in Myanmar that didn't have airbags, seatbelts, or working brakes, and and, and then say, well, simply this is the level of service that we are able to provide. And Facebook made a lot of money out of Myanmar. It became the number one uh, tech platform in, in, in that country. And, and, and I, think, I think 
that these companies, as, as we've heard, they're, they're highly profitable. They're not small businesses. They've got the resources if they choose to, to provide moderation of harmful content on their platforms. But they decided to, to prioritise profit over very clear harm, in this case, genocidal harm, to a, a minority group. And it, it's it's something that I think as as a as a as a, as a, as a you know, as as a, as a planet, we need to take action to make sure this does not continue to happen. It's it's certainly not in the interests of of minorities, but it's not in the interest of majorities either, and it shouldn't be in the interests of of anyone to allow our our, our world to operate in a way where, for profit, minority groups can be exploited and genocidally treated as the Rohingya were. Thank you, Ronan, and thank you for that analogy. I think that um, uh, that's one thing I'll hold back today comparing to selling a car without seatbelts or or other safety features. We could discuss this all day, uh, but we're almost upon the end of the time, um, and I know everyone is busy, so so maybe what I would suggest just, we'll go through all the speakers. We, we had a few minutes for a closing comment or a closing thought. Um, I'll ask Alice to go first, but but I just think of it, what's an action item that, what's achievable? What, what can we work? on together to protect um, minority groups from uh, from online hate uh, and, and protect their human rights. So just what's one thing that perhaps is missing or something that we should scale up our, our efforts together to work on? Alice, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Um, I, I would think that right now, um, it, it's great that we have uh, this space to have this kind of discussion, but we should have it in a more coordinated way um, where we, um, planning together because we are working in different ways, all of us, and coming together and sharing ideas and then dispersing once again. Yeah. We would be stronger together if we did this uh, together. And for me, that's my the idea that we have all this information that we need to put together. We need to create um, a kind of, um, um, I don't know what to call it, because you cannot be a friend of hate speech <laughs> and um, like, but you know what I mean when, when I say that, that we do need to create a kind of network that, that works um, around this kind of issues, especially specifically on hate speech. Since I'm the UN uh, global focal point, uh, this office, I leave the office at the UN global focal point for hate speech. There's a lot of information that comes my way. There's a lot of information that would be very, very useful um, to people in civil society. There's also a lot of information that comes from civil society and lots of ideas of things we can do together. So I'll, I'll just ask that we organize ourselves in such a way that we now begin thinking together and working together and seeing what is it that we can, because we have everything in place between us, even the organization that I've spoken today and everyone that's listening and so many other partners that we have out there, there is a lot of information that just needs to be put together in one space. And I would be very happy to host uh, a first meeting in terms of taking this forward. Thank you, Alice. We might be in touch with you about that. Uh, sounds like a, an amazing opportunity to to push this um, agenda forward and have meaningful action. Uh, Fernand, I'd like to, to uh, uh, invite you to give your closing um, thoughts or statement. Yeah, sure. Let's get rid of the impunity of social media and make them pay for the harm they are causing. Uh, we need global standards and even regulation to protect freedom of expression on one hand, but also that prevents uh, that operate to prevent hate speech that causes real harm and even lends a, a medium for calls to genocide. We have to protect societies, and right now societies are threatened uh, with instability and conflicts uh, and even genocide. 
unless we take action alone. Thank you. Thank you, Fernand, for those thoughts and for emphasizing um, accountability uh, to the tech platforms. Naomi, I'd like to ask you to, um, to take the floor. Thanks so much, Kyle. Um, and thanks for posing the question this way because it's got me, me thinking. So I'm going to make a proposal, um, which is that we invest deeply in um, one prevention case. Uh, 2024 marks the 10-year anniversary of ISIS's attacks on uh, ethnic and religious minorities in Iraq, where social media was used to recruit fighters, to frame victims as others that had to be targeted, to explain the perverse interpretation of religion as a way of legitimizing the targeting, to inflict terror so people would flee. And then finally, it was used to actually sell human beings, young girls and women, um, online as, uh, as enslaved people. Today, what we see is a dramatic uptick in hate speech against the Yazidi community on social media, references to them being infidels, uh, spreading rumors about the community, calling for uh, a completion to what ISIS began. And we don't see any counter, counter messaging from prominent religious figures in Iraq or a very strong response from, as I said before, the Iraqi government. So, you know, here's a situation where we could argue it's post-genocidal, yet the risks are very real still for this particular community. And maybe one strategy is we take the lessons that have been learned from other cases and really try to dive deep on what a prevention strategy would look like um, around hate speech in this context as one commitment as a community to trying to do something uh, to not just mark the 10th anniversary, um, but to really try to help improve the future well-being of this community that remains at risk. Thank you, Naomi. And I think that's an excellent idea. And, and we will follow up with you as well after this on that. Uh, last but not least, Ronan, I'd like to, um, to um, ask you to share your, your closing thoughts. Yeah, I think it's important to make it uh, costly to the platforms that enable the hate speech to occur. And I, I think they ought to be criminally liable. For, for what occurs on their platforms when they do not provide adequate moderation. It's one thing to say that the moderation was adequate and then bad things happened. It's another to provide virtually zero moderation and then and then present the notion that you're surprised that your platform was weaponized to, to genocidally mistreat people. So uh, make, make the directors of these companies criminally liable. Ronan, thank you for that. Um, and before I, I thank our, our speakers for joining us, I just want to say the ideas you presented today, your expertise that you shared, we're going to take that, distill it, and and put into a strategic white paper that we're going to share with the Canadian government uh, as the Canadian government wants to do more and is more active both uh, domestically encountering hate speech, but also internationally as well. So uh, this project is, is, is going to take these ideas and try to move them forward and get Canadian government support. Uh, but with that being said, on behalf of my colleagues at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Rights Studies, I'd like to thank you, Alice, Fernand, Ronan, and Naomi. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very, very busy schedules and sharing your expert knowledge and, and, um, and ideas on what we can do as a community to, to counter online hate. Thank you so thank much. You.